everybody, welcome back to the Wardens of Westeros podcast. I am Bauer and I am joined by Matt today. Hello everybody, we are actually streaming this together this week. Yes, Matt Matt made it south of the wall I and did. decided to pay me a visit. From the uh, came from the lands of always winter. <laughs> so I want to go ahead and uh, apologize to everybody like I've apologized to Drew. Um, we've had some technical difficulties this week and trying to get our stuff up so we're gonna be uh two days late posting this podcast so apologies in advance but good things come to those who wait kind of like we've had to wait two episodes for Jon Snow to be back man and he's he's back and yes we did wait I really thought we were gonna have to wait longer uh but we're he's here yeah he's here it was a great episode all around though I thought um I say we just jump right into it yeah, let's do. But before that, we have a sponsor for this episode. This episode is brought to you by Sir Davo Seaworth. You need onions? We got them. And uh, you can go to their website at onionsmakeuscry.westeros.com to see all of their availability. They've got a lot of different products. You know, there are more, there are more than just one type of onion. They are. <laughs> there are. But so, yeah, let's jump in. Anyway, so it, uh, we go north of the wall. With uh, Bran the Blood Raven working back into a, a flashback of Winterfell. That is true. Uh, so, you know, we hadn't seen Bran in all of season five. He got a very fancy haircut. <laughs> yeah. But he's apparently honing his skills. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of great stuff, you know, especially if you're a, a book reader who really, you know, appreciates the past that we haven't really got to see in the show. Um, so we see young Ned and Benjen sparring yeah in the yard uh, and we we get the the good line of uh keep your shield up or i'll ring your head like a bell (laughs) which is actually the same line that john used to ollie whenever he first made it to the wall yep when they were training so then we see probably the most exciting part liana stark in the show (laughs) i mean who would have thought yeah and, and so we were talking about this before we were recording um the way the show presented her, it looked like she was significantly older than Ned or Benjen. Yeah, so me and Matt talked about this. We were we were a little confused. I mean, I'm sure it's just who they picked. Uh, and but I looked I looked up everybody's ages according to George, and Ned is supposedly the oldest out of the three we're talking about. Uh, Ned, Benjen, and Liana. And then Benjen and Liana are literally probably a couple months apart in in book in book world, but I don't know. I feel like Liana was older, but maybe they did that because she's such a commanding presence. Yeah, I mean, and that's the way. And so one thing that this really showed me this all but confirmed uh, R plus L equals J, and <laughs> you know, so they present her as this strong girl who's very good at equestrian. You know, she she's riding her horse, has yep. command. Um, you know, she, she's not a girly girl, and so every time we hear about Liana, she always is presented as this damsel in distress who, you know, got kidnapped potentially and uh, was being you know held against her will. But the way that they presented it, it's nothing of the sort. I mean, it looks like you know nobody's gonna walk in and kidnap her. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that it's plausible to think that she knew exactly what she was doing. Or getting into, which is a little weird because you know the Starks don't really go out of their comfort zone, yeah, so to speak. Um, even when look, they hit 
Ned's dad may not have known beforehand, but like going to see the Mad King and then getting taken out, you know, like they just they yeah. never have any luck. Or, or Ned going to King's Landing in the first place. Yeah, exactly. You know, so. But no, so I think she totally knew what was going on. But uh, yeah, so it's it's. Don't you think it's interesting they dropped this in and then we saw in the preview for episode three that we're probably going to get Tower of Joy. Yeah, and I think they did this just so they could introduce her character, so yep. we can you know see and at least have some name recognition to her and one more link i want to say before we move on is we see liana here we're probably going to see her at the tower of joy which will tell us a lot more about what's going on and john is back so i think that they're like setting this up like Mm -hmm. chronologically on the show they're like building and building towards something so hopefully it's the theory that you know has literally been out there for a long time yeah and then, so just before we move on, we also get to see Hodor. Yes, Hodor. Or uh, apparently they changed his name to Willis. Will, what which, up, Willis? Yeah, right. so, so <laughs> if y'all don't know, um, in the books, his name is Walder. And, you know, it, it makes sense to me why they would change it due to the fact of Walder Frey. Yep. So, you know, you, there's already so many characters that you have to remember who and, and recognize who they are. And so I think throwing in uh, double names would, uh, would, would throw more complexity into a very already complex now show. I, I know what matt's gonna say but i always hate when they do this it's not that and i mean full disclosure and i've probably said this in almost every episode i'm not a full book reader i have read some but I, we do a lot of research so we know what we're talking about but i can't stand when they do this Matt says that I'm being too hard on him just because there's a lot of people that can't process all the specifics. You know, we put a lot of extra time into understanding everything that's in, you know, in an episode or in this in a story arc. Yeah. But I don't know, it just drives me insane. Like from the Greyjoy girl to Hodor to uh Robin, Aaron. Oh yeah. Like all of it. But anyway, I understand it, but I think it's unnecessary. Yeah, and, and so then we get uh, Bran and the Blood Raven who kind of come out of their uh, green seeing. And, you know, I was watching this with my girlfriend, and if you didn't know, I mean, since we saw, the last time we saw the Blood Raven was in season four, so it's been an entire year, yep. or really two years of our time that we've seen him. Sure. And so Kay was wondering, she was like, who in the world is this? Yeah. So the so the actor was recast. Yeah. Yeah. And so we just want to say that I, I know a lot of people either noticed or, I don't know, maybe they watched, uh, the binged watched and caught up and thought, yeah, this something, something's not right here. Yeah. Uh, but yes, they did recast the actor. And I felt a little silly too, because uh, on my, my first round of watching it, uh, they have one of the, uh, I think her name is Leaf, and she, she's a child of the forest. Yes. And I didn't catch that on my first watch through since it's been so long since we've seen them and i i remember texting drew and i was like dude who in the world is this person <laughs> so this is the chick that was throwing fireballs like Liu kang on mortal Kombat. <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> and she was just like you better get in here or you're not gonna make it yeah which is a great segue to mira reed in my opinion exactly and so uh since mira's kind of featured a little more in this episode, you know, you can tell that she's going to have a big part to play in the upcoming, you know, crescendoing effect that the show is having. 
Now, I don't know what capacity that will be in. Um, and there's actually a bunch of theories going around, which uh, we'll probably do a bonus video on at some point this season, um, that Mira Reed may be linked to the Tower of Joy. And I won't spoil, you know, spoil any of that. But regardless if that's true, I still think she's going to have an increasingly important role to play as the show pans out. Well, I think you're right. Uh, we see Leaf, the child of the forest, basically tell her, Bran needs you, he's not going to be able to, you know, basically fulfill his mission without you. But where we see Mira here is not in a good place. But on a funny note, I think the only reason she's around right now is to bring them food. Because yeah. they just lay around all day. Yeah, it's not like uh, Bran's going out hunting anytime soon. No, they're like smoking something and doing acid and having visions. Yeah. And then she just brings all the food. Yeah. And, and you know, so with the way the show is, or I'm assuming, is that um, the the order that this picked up in, so it's, it's a, a season behind in our time, but in the show's, you know, chronology, it's very, very close to the end of season four. Yeah. And so, you know, she's just having to get over Jojen, who just got murdered at the end of season four so i still think she's in her grieving process and kind of trying to find answers yeah that that she hasn't found yet yeah it probably hasn't been terribly long no in in their in their time as they're perceiving it yeah and so uh, then anyway we head on to castle black uh with the the standoff between davos and alistair i guess this is round three at this point between the two of them round two yeah the time you know Time is up, the ultimatum, and Alistair wants this thing ended. Yeah, and so one thing about this scene, um, it, it's, you know, they start breaking the door, or try to break the door down, and so Davos grabs Longclaw, and you think it's about to go down. Um, yeah. I actually, just because of how close I follow the happenings on the show, and a big shout out to Watchers on the Wall. They, uh, they have a great website, and they can kind of keep you up to date with stuff that's happening, you know, outside of the realm of the show, but, you know, with different actors and things like that. They actually posted a clip of um, Liam Cunningham, who plays Sir Davos, on the Conan show, and we got to see that whole entire little scene up until the point where one one comes busting yep. down the gates of Winterfell. Yeah, so huge, huge entrance by one one and the wildlings a big entrance for a big man i suppose exactly and he literally paints the wall with <laughs> with this guy who shot him with a crossbow bolt yeah and so that's something that doesn't even make sense to me i, I guess if you're gonna go out go out trying yeah something like that but you gotta think and he he shoots one one in like the the back shoulder blade with just a normal, you know, crossbow bolt. And I don't I don't get what he was trying to accomplish. Maybe he was just he was not thinking. No, he was not. He will not be thinking anymore. Currently. No, but he's probably well, he's dead, but he was probably the only person that would have gotten a merit badge from Alistair cuz no one else did anything. Yeah, I think I saw in the Tormund, next sequence. Tormund cut down one guy and then then that was the end of that. Yeah, and Ollie gra- grabs for the sword and tries to go after one of them yeah. and just gets spanked and a, a part of me was really hoping that maybe Tormund would just kind of slide his sword through ollie's face but uh and, and you know i think it's one of those where the show's not gonna i, I say this that they're, they're not gonna kill ollie because that's just they want to 
Yeah, no. Just throw we, the middle finger to all of that us. Would, yeah, that would give us way too much satisfaction. Yeah. But yeah, the wildlings burst in. Matt really alluded to this when we did our episode one recap uh, in, a, in a group I call the Three Musketeers, which would be uh, Ed and Tormund, and I guess Davos, Sir Davos technically, yeah. you know, teaming up. Uh, but yeah, the the duo part of that really came through, and they basically take over Castle Black. Yeah, I mean, and so when you really think about this, this is the first time that Castle Black has been, I say, under wildling control. It's not, but you know, in a thousand years, this is the first time where you know, the, I guess Alice already named himself the Lord Commander. You know, yeah. So the wildlings really do take over Castle Black. Yeah. So uh, interesting, interesting stuff happening up at the wall in in the earlier part of the episode, yeah. but uh, and, and so then we, we roll on down to King's Landing um, with the the drunk guy um, who, <laughs> unfortunately, you recognize from uh, the yeah. end of season five with Cersei's Walk of Shame, and uh, this guy is is you know he's bragging to all his buddies and one of my favorite <laughs> <laughs> lines that he said was. Uh, Jamie Lannister's and half inch shy of an inch, <laughs> which I thought was clever. This guy had no idea what was coming. No, I guess it's kind of one of those you talk smack, you get smacked back type deals. And so, you know, he's already wasted and he goes to relieve himself. Yep. And the mountain, Franken Mountain, comes up behind him. <laughs> and it's kind of like one of those videos of cops where you know there's a really drunk guy who's peeing yeah and then doesn't stop peeing but turns around and you can see a you know yeah, urinating I mean, you on the mountain it. i mean you could hear yeah. it on like his plate yeah armor and, and he then just he just gets back crushes his head done so that was uh, and, you know i never find myself rooting for the mountain but I no, was neither do i really, i was but... very happy with how that played out uh, yeah i thought i thought it was funny and kind of an interesting segue into the next part of this. But I will preface that I thought that the King's Landing scenes were the weakest part of the episode for me. I know there was a lot of like high-octane stuff going on. Um, but I, I don't know. The, King's Landing is not what it used to be No, to me. And, and I think it's because all the interesting characters have left. And by interesting, I mean Tywin, Tyrion, Littlefinger, and Varys. Yeah, which is all fled. The only people who know what the hell they're doing, too. <laughs> That's true. Well, they also. I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I think it really speaks to the amount of influence they actually had. Oh yeah. Even though Tyrion was kind of minimalized, uh, or minimized at the end uh, of his, you know, tenure there. No pun. Especially intended. with <laughs> no pun intended. Especially with the trial, but. Yeah, I mean, they knew they knew the ins and outs. They had been there for years, uh, and they knew, you know, what their lane was. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think there's definitely a vacuum. Yeah, and you know, obviously, it's been left substantially unfilled. But unfortunately, the people who are kind of filling it now is the faith militant. Which, well, I'm yeah. o- I'm over this. Yeah, this is uh, one of Drew's pet peeves. I think this is becoming everybody's pet peeve currently. Well, it's like it's, it's aspects of the story rotate and like how much we can tolerate. Um, my the biggest thing to me, and I know it's it's been explained, and I encourage people to kind of go through this on their own. 
and it's been explained in kind of the production and the background. But like the reason they're really able to succeed is because Tywin is no more. Yeah. And so like like we just alluded to, there are a lot of changes at the Capitol. And so they've they've basically found this niche that they can, you know, infiltrate and take advantage of. Yeah, exactly. And so, so we get to where Cersei is trying to go to Marcella's funeral, and Tommen has ordered the Lannister soldiers to mm-hmm. make sure she doesn't leave. And we get to see this really good kind of exchange between uh, the Lannister soldiers talking to Cersei, yep, but keeping a very close eye on the mountain who is behind her. <laughs> And, you know, you think about this like, oh, this is where she's going to let him go and he's just going to start tearing people down. Yeah. But she turns around and is fairly level-headed, but you can just see this sigh of relief from the Lannister soldiers that they don't have to take on this guy. This guy gets a couple of awards from me. One, for having the courage to talk, but I thought the actor did a phenomenal job with yeah. this. Uh, yeah, I, I have to say... That I don't think they were, like, searching for unnecessary, like, violence or, you know, like, carrying on in this in this particular storyline. Yeah. But I did find it interesting that she turned around and, you know, kind of called him off. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and that could have been just because it was, you know, like their, Atlantis their for people. soldiers. Yeah, yeah it's kind of like, you know, no need to fight amongst us when we have so many enemies. Yeah. Anyway, and then we uh, it transitions over to Jamie and Tommen, who are in the Great Sept having this discussion. Yeah, and me and Matt talked about this. It seems that, look, plenty of people have died on the show, and they all, you know, either lay in the Sept or the Red Keep or whatever the situation is. Uh, But I feel like all the Lannisters, it's very similar, you know, in construction. Like, how they're there, how we see them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know the eyes are a religious thing, and everybody gets that, but I really always feel this, uh, this connection between the three deaths that they've dealt with. Yeah, that's true. And so then we get Jamie kind of, um, not not parenting, I mean, I guess it is parenting since he is his parent, but, you know, sure. ca- kind of acting as a, a role model figure for Tommen. And Tommen even goes in to admit that, you know, he was very weak and he shouldn't have let him do that to Cersei yeah. and, and all this. And, and so Jamie, fi- you know, after he gets to be a parent to Marcella for all of 10 seconds. Yep he can finally kind of take over at least some sort of uh, role model, you know, role with Tommen. Well, I'm I'm questioning Jamie's motivations here. So, yeah, Tommen needs an advisor, and we're about he's about to get back his old one, Cersei, yeah. in the next scene. But Jamie, and I, I mentioned this before, and I'm going to mention it again, but Jamie to me is backsliding. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where George has him going in the books, but the show really has him all over the place. Yeah, and so one of the, the problems with this is, is, and we've talked about this, is that book, the, the dynamics between Cersei and Jaime in the books, where they are right now, yeah. and in the show, are two completely different things. I would agree. And in the books, there's a whole lot of friction right now. Yeah. And it's getting to the point where, you know, th- there's some serious, you know, friction between Cersei and Jaime. And that's only building more in that direction in the books. However, in the show, it almost seems as if they are trying to bring them back together, yep. which I don't know what the end game is in this situation. And 
Neither do I, but I do think that Cersei is still continuing. She doesn't know it yet, but I think she's continuing to, like, set Jamie up for failure, like, with whatever their thing is. Yeah. Like, I do not... I don't think in the end that it's going to coalesce to anything, because I... If you believe the prophecy, then it's never going to actually be a thing. Yeah, it'll never really matter. And so anyway, then we get this really good exchange between Jamie and the High Sparrow. Yeah. And essentially, Jamie kind of shows his hand. You know, he says, "Hey, you know, I killed my cousin. Um, you know, all these other yeah, and the really, Mad King, yeah, the and Mad all King, that. and he says all these grievous sins that he has committed." But it shows that the sparrows are not necessarily, I mean, they're running on a moral platform, but they're really doing it based on political power because if they really cared about all these morals that they say and all this, you know, religious yep. fanaticism, they would have arrested Jamie right there as soon as he confessed to all those crimes. I agree. I think they're, they're picking and choosing. Absolutely. You know, it's a double standard. Yeah. And so, but what we see. The High Sparrow kind of called Jamie's bluff. He's yeah. like, hey, you can kill me. That's fine. I mean, my people won't get to you before you can kill me. Yeah. But, hey, whatever. Yeah, but then you got to get out of here somehow. Yeah, so the chain gang shows up, and, uh, you know, they just travel in packs because there's so many of them. And apparently they can just get away with anything. This guy, though, this is going to be horrible, but this guy reminds me of Bernie Sanders. <laughs> like, in just his, like moral platitudes and things but anyway <laughs> anyway yeah. just had to yeah, laugh about like that too. Yeah, just had to laugh about that so anyway then we go back to Tommen actually going and apologizing to Cersei yeah and i think that this is going to prove to be one of the biggest foreshadowing scenes in this season because you can really see Cersei kind of take control back over Tommen and keep in mind, this whole thing with the Faith Militant started because Cersei was trying to divide Tommen and Marjorie. Yes. Because she was gaining so much control over him. Which, hey, if Marjorie wanted to come have a couple words with me, I wouldn't <laughs> throw rocks at her. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Shout out to our listener, uh, Blake, as well, for uh, for his line. But, so, so you know, this you can kind of see Cersei uh, getting her claws back into Tommen and kind of having control over her. As soon as he yeah. says, you know, I need you, Mom, like, you know, we got to make well, this stuff is, happen. This is par for the course. Tommen, it, you know, is immature and inexperienced, and I get it. And it's his mom, let, let's be fair. Um, but this is, I think this is just one of those, it was going to happen either way. Tommen clearly regrets the decisions he did not make. Uh, and I still think he's got room to rectify these. And I think Jamie and Cersei in this episode are actually trying to... Uh, Cersei didn't do much, but my point is, I think they're trying to demonstrate that it's still possible to take these people down yeah. in an old, you know, an old Lannister way. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. I thought it was interesting that he kind of came head in hand... And just said, well, I need help now. Yeah. Well, and, and this is kind of a thought I just had. It's it's so interesting, and I'm even going to talk about this later, but, you know, just kind of how the, the show can dictate your perspective on things. And so, yes. you know, realistically, we should be satisfied that the Lannisters are getting put in their place currently. Yeah, exactly. However, however 
with the way the angles are that we're presented with, you absolutely hate the Faith Militant with more of a passion than you hate the Lannisters. Yeah, and so I I mentioned this the other day to somebody that if you would have looked at Jamie and Cersei at the end of season one, you wouldn't want them anywhere near your Thanksgiving dinner table. <laughs> yeah. But now you're like, oh man, like what what's happened to these people? Yeah. They've been through so much. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So I agree. Perspective uh, you know, on the show has a weird way of making you feel sorry for people that you probably shouldn't. Yeah. But, you know, one of the Lannisters that we've always loved and probably will always love is Tyrion. Tyrion. And so we get to see, you know, another great Tyrion and Varys kind of exchange uh, in the Great Pyramid of Marine, where Tyrion's pouring a bunch of wine, <laughs> as usual, and Varys is just kind of shaking his head at him. Yeah, like, same same shit, different day. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, and then, and then <laughs> Tyrion says, you know, oh, if uh, I, you know, I was in your predicament, I would drink all the time. Yeah. And, you know, not thinking that, you know, Grey Worm is, is a eunuch just like Varys, Varys is. Yep. And so then Tyrion tries to kind of play it off like, oh, well, you know, we, uh, I, I make, uh, he makes dwarf jokes and I make eunuch jokes. <laughs> yeah, and, it was like it, this understood, like, jabbing. Yeah, yeah but but then Varys goes, well, well yeah, but I, I don't make dwarf jokes. <laughs> yeah, but, and Tyrion's like, but you think them. Yeah. And I know you do. And then we get probably one of the greatest uh, quotes that will probably come from this show. You can go ahead and put it on a t-shirt right now. Yep. Uh, uh, from Tyrion. I drink and I know things. And, and so he's talking about, he's read a lot about dragons, which leads us into his foray and having the probably the worst idea that oh, he, yeah. th- in his life. And I think he admits to this after. Yeah, well, I mean, so... Yeah. We kind of assume, and especially us being researchers, and you know, I'm assuming people who read the books were really kind of anticipating on him taking a another character's uh, role and going down to the dragons and maybe getting uh, a little bit more well done than he was hoping to be. Yeah, that's true. Luckily, that didn't happen though. But this also lets us have one of the uh, another great scene. Like I said, it's such, such a great episode, but of Tyrion kind of explaining his love for dragons. Yeah. And he gives this story about how he wanted a dragon, you know, for so long. And even one of the kind of most heartbreaking lines he says was, you know, I'll even take a little dragon, if even if it's little like me. Which I was like, oh, man, that, that hits you right in the feels. Oh, yeah. But, uh, and I, I mentioned this to Matt when we were, you know, getting ready for the show. That uh, this really reminded me of Tyrion in his cell talking about their cousin oh, that yeah. crushes the Beatles. The Beatle crusher, yeah, yeah, because it you you like really like felt what was happening like with the story and where Tyrion was in that story. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I think this is a great example of not not only Tyrion's humanity and you know his his way of thinking and how he grew up, um, but also. How he approaches situations. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, you literally have two things that could take him out in an instant. Yeah. And yes, he's scared and nervous, but he did what he does best. Yeah. And I know some people are thinking that, um, and this is another, you know, one of those crack pot, you know, mm-hmm. ten, uh, tenfold theories that... Tyrion may be a Targaryen. You can look that up online if you want. So yep. I'm sure everybody now is going to associate this with him, you know, dragon binding and things like that. 
But I don't think that's the case, at least from this scene, the way it presented itself. Um, because right before, you know, Masinde tells him, oh, yeah, you know, they know they're friends. And, and yep. Tyrion says, you know, they're smarter than humans, some people believe. And so I think that that's really good that, you know, there's going to be kind of a dynamic between the dragons and Tyrion now that Daenerys is away. Yeah, but you're right. I do think uh, people that buy into the Tyrion-Targaryen theory are, yeah, going to use this scene as a way to justify. Yeah. And I'm not saying I really, like, agree or disagree. I've seen the theory. I don't really have a particular point of view other than, yeah, maybe it's possible. Yeah. It's kind of like a bunch of the ten full theories we've seen, so... Anyway, then we uh, we kind of move on to Bravos here with uh, as we predicted last week, Arya gets the shit kicked out of her again. Yep, wave round two, which Arya loses. She is now over two. Hor- I mean, just horribly beaten down with a stick yeah. in the street. And it gets, I mean, and as Thrones always is, but this gets to the point where even like I'm like kind of starting to physically hurt whenever I see this scene. Play oh yeah, out. I mean, this is a you know. In the in story terms, this is like a fifteen year old chick just getting beat down. Yeah, and so um, I, I was watching right before this episode started. Um, I was watching the the preview for it, um, and I noticed a couple things on this. And I actually had called Drew right before the episode started and said, mm-hmm. "Hey, man, do you want to do kind of like a preview podcast?" And yeah. we didn't get a chance to do it. But one of the things I noticed was that. Um, Arya, she kind of takes a swing, and this hand reaches out and grabs her staff. And I noticed that it was Jockin's kind of cloth, like cloth wardrobe yeah. thing. Yeah. And so it turns out to be true. So we get to see Jack, and he's back. I, uh, uh, you know, that or, guy. or or somebody with his face is back. Yeah. You know, they have a. There. This is definitely just a. It's like Inception. Your yeah. mind is just mush, trying to figure out what is real or what is not, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, Jockin is back, and he asks her the three questions, uh, giving her back you know, her sight, food, I guess, and whatever, shit, and, and roof, shelter. Yeah, yeah over her head, and uh, basically asking her, you know, does she still claim her old name? And yeah. she doesn't. She stands strong. And so, as far as we know right now, the alley cat beggar phase is over. Yeah, and, and I will say one, one thing about this kind of dynamic is, is that obviously Arya knows Jackin's voice and it's not like he's like like you know so he asked her all these things and, and she she's kind of known now to to don't mention anything about Arya like don't say Arya you're nobody yeah he's kind of forced that into her so I, I think it would have been pretty uh interesting to see if maybe he wouldn't have taken her this episode to the house of black and white and mm-hmm. so when she refuses all this to say okay well you're gonna sit back on the street and then take her back next episode after he tests that's, her again. That's fair. Just because, I mean, you know, not that she doesn't think she's nobody. Yeah. But she doesn't think she's nobody. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, she has not actually made the transition that she purports to have made. Exactly. And I think Jackin should be smarter than that. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. Does he actually have a soft spot or is this his way of weeding them out? You know, it, and it it could be, and I'm sure we'll get more uh, resolution on this. One one thing on these guys, um, do we ever know like who leads these people? Like, is there an or like a committee well, and or so, a head? And, well, I don't even you know, know, but because obviously, so Jackin is, you know, we see him face shift or you know, yeah, him get a new face uh, after he releases Arya from Harrenhal. Yeah. And then we see him supposedly drink poison and die. 
and then he's back again now. And so, you know, I, I don't know if it's one person who is just kind of pulling faces from where they can. Sure. I mean, and I, I don't even know if we'll ever really get to know. Yeah. Well, in the terms of, like, associating it with one character, which is Jock and Agar, I feel like he's, like, an agent and a recruiter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, he goes on missions, but he also tries to bring people back to the nest. Yeah. But who's the nest? Like, we, yeah, we, somebody's got to keep the light bill on. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. they got to have and his ministry. deciding, you know, yeah. you know, what, you know, what the, the mission is. The other thing I want to allude to real quick is I do feel like the faceless men play a larger role in, in events yeah. than is currently realized. Absolutely. Well, and... and yeah, so because I mean, people think that Serial Pharrell may have been a faceless man who you know has done this and sure, and obviously they're made to operate incognito and and that's why they have faces in general. And so yeah, you know some of these murders that have happened around Westeros may have been a faceless man taking someone else's face and, and you know doing the deed. That's true. So. Then uh, I guess we could. You want to go ahead and move on? You got anything else? Yeah, no, I'm good. We're uh, we're we're off to Winterfell. Yeah, and uh, and so we get to see a family who we haven't seen since season three, and that's the Carstarks. Ah, the Carstarks. They're and, uh, still pissed. And it wasn't on good terms no. the last time we saw them. No. So uh, if you recall, um, Rob beheaded the. I guess what was it Richard Carstark or Rickard Carstark? I, I can't remember. Yeah, I think that is his one, name, one of the actually. two. Um, he was beheading him at the end of season three because he disobeyed his orders. Well, naturally, his sons weren't too happy about that, and so now you can see them opening up and uh, or the scene opening up, and uh, Lord Harold Carstark now is talking to Roose and Ramsay about potentially retaking the North. Yeah, so uh, I, I found it interesting how they brought the Karstarks into this. Uh, obviously, the Boltons are very, very focused on consolidating their power in the North and having people respect and follow them, and this is part of that process. Obviously, the Karstarks are more motivated than some of the other larger, more prominent Stark-affiliated households. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so we see Ramsay and him there, and... Enters the maester. Yeah, um, and obviously he gives the uh, the good slash bad news depending on uh, who you are and what your opinion is. So you know the the maester comes in and says, uh, "Walda has had a, a baby boy. You know he's very healthy," and you can kind of see the wheels in Ramsey's head turn instantly when he says that. And you you can tell you know that that he has a plan. And it, it may because it's a it's a very irrational plan, and so you know what Roos was was kind of a very calculating and cruel person, to whereas Ramsey is kind of this wild dog who doesn't have anyone to kind of rein him in. Yeah. Now that he killed Roos, obviously, and so you know uh, Roos says, you know, Ramsey, you'll always be my firstborn son, which so we I think everything's good. Yeah. You know, like the original yeah. arrangement is still in place. Yeah. We're going to try to get Sansa back, and we'll get you a kid, too. Yeah, well, Ramsey didn't like that either. He did not. And I, that, I was, that was so unexpected for me, though. I have to admit, you know, as much as we know about Ramsey and his demented, uh, you know, thoughts and actions, uh, yeah, I didn't expect this to happen, but Roos goes down. Yeah, and 
this will be a, a question for our viewers, and you can feel free to write us in or uh, you know send us a, a Twitter message. Yeah. Uh, at districtdogma at twitter com, I guess if you have dot coms. But who do you think is a, a better villain, uh, Ramsey or Joffrey? Uh, we were kind of talking about this before we started yeah. recording, and so we'd love to get some feedback from y'all about it. Yeah, that'd be great to hear from people. So we see Roos you know, bleeding out on the floor and Ramsey saying, well, you know, I'm the Lord of Winterfell. And then we get the worst part, which is then he summons the maester to get Walda and the baby. And nothing good's ever happened. No. I mean, she just had a kid. Yeah. And she's traipsing through the snow. And you realize very quickly he's bringing her to the kennels. Yeah. And it does not go well. Yeah, and, and I will say that there was a split second in my deep, deep heart that I thought, you know what, I bet that they're just going to throw us a curveball here, Yeah. and Ramsey's going to let her go. Yeah. And I was wrong. Well, I, I know what you mean. I did have a similar feeling, and I think it's the way they built it up, and the, it's the timing. Yeah. You know, you think like, ah, oh, he's going to let her go, but no. Yeah, no, he, he, he didn't, unfortunately, and so, Ooh. you know... This is how Thrones has kind of um, started doing their really more graphic scenes. They did it with Shireen. They did it with Sansa yep. uh, on her wedding night to where they have these really horrific things going on in the background. And then they zoom in on one character's face to get their reaction on it. Yeah. Which is just as bad because that leaves your imagination... To think the worst. Not saying that they should show all that, but it, yeah, it's, yeah. it's like they try to throw you a bone by doing that. It doesn't help at all. No. I mean, it, it leaves you uh, to your imagination about how the situation went down, and that's not necessarily a good thing. No. But yeah, Walda is done. A um, couple of things I want to talk about this general it and Winterfell scene. I thought it was interesting that Roos was stabbed. You know, he stabbed Rob. You yeah, know, and he went down that way at the red wedding, and he, you know, he was just left to die. And my, uh, as much as I hate the phrase, and I think they're a weak family, um, I'm curious to know if this backfires because the one thing we did not see from Ramsay on Walda was how she died. You know, remember he specifically tells the Maester that Roos, quote, died of poison. Yeah. But, you know, we don't see a, quote, explanation yeah. about what happened to Walda for the public to know. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm sure that, that may be just kind of a, an oversight. But, yeah. you know, people are much more concerned about the Lord of Winterfell than they are about his wife. Yeah, good old fat Walda Frey. Yeah. She paid the high. She, w- she was the highest price. Yeah, that's paid true. Paid in gold. So, you got anything else you want to mention on that? And no, we're we're off we're to rolling. the uh, we're off to Sansa. Yeah, so you know, I guess this is somewhere between Castle Black and Winterfell. Yeah, um, and we get Sansa and Brienne. You know, it's it's a very brief scene about her or them talking about Arya, because if you recall, it was at season four or season three. I think season four with the Hound uh, and Brienne fighting, you know, over custody of Arya. And so that that was the last time that Brienne has seen her, and you know, obviously she was doing well. So, you know, one of the big things for, for about this scene is that now Sansa knows that she thought she was the last Stark, 
with the exception of John, who's at the wall. Yep. But now she yep. knows that Arya's still alive, and Bran and Rickon are still alive, all in this you know very short amount of time. And so you can kind of see that momentum starting to shift in her direction and, and really start to, to build up speed. Yeah. And hopefully it'll take us all the way to the end of this season with her retaking Winterfell. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's a huge thing for Sansa. But I want to point out one small thing, and that's how, how the characters in a world like this would get their information and the things they don't know and how long it takes to learn something. Yeah. Especially if you're not in like an information network. You know, like if you're not a fic, not at a fixed castle or something, yeah. you're not constantly getting communiques from people. Um, you know, you wouldn't know what was going on. And you know, Sansa has been cooped up with you know random people, not her family, for so long that she just has no idea. Yeah, I mean, this is all like the saying. This is all news to her. <laughs> yeah, uh, but no, I thought this was uh, another interesting exchange. You know, Brienne is as loyal, I think, as they come. Try as she might, sometimes she fails, but she's, you know, she tries very hard. Um, but yeah, she brings some comfort here. I think she also is to be credited with the apology given to Theon. Yeah, and and so w- with with Theon, um, obviously he's gone through hell. Yeah, with Ramsay, and. Even up to the end of season five, as bad as it was, in the back of my mind, I'm still thinking, yeah, but he betrayed Rob Stark yep. and killed two innocent boys and Maester Lewin. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's, it's justice being served, essentially. But as of this episode now, after all the stuff that he's had, yep. I, I'm ready to forgive... Theon, for his past crimes, and it looks like Sansa has to. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm willing to. I don't know if I will yet. Uh, my my biggest thing with Theon is, though, he, he's, he, he's complex because he was really trying to impress his father, who is a scumbag. Yeah. But he doesn't know any better, and he had been warded at... Uh, Winterfell for so long, you'd think he'd have some kind of, you know, allegiance, but I guess not. And you know, his fateful decision to go up against Rob really has set a lot of events into motion. Yeah. Well, I mean, so so the problem is, and we can kind of see the switch of Theon whenever Rob sends him to the Iron Islands to try to negotiate some kind of deal with yes. Balon during the War of the Five Kings, and so. Really, whenever you know he's expecting to go home as this hero, and you know he's still very noble. He, you know, mm-hmm. it's like he's Ned's, you know, ward. You can see a lot of Ned in him and his raising. And then as soon as he gets to the Iron Islands, you know, you can see him kind of get demeaned a little bit, and yeah. his character instantly switch. Well, I really do. Uh, very astute uh, of you to say because I really think also. A contributing factor was his sister. Yeah. It, I mean, I don't really have any love lost for Yara, but she is so focused on being better than all the men in the family that I think it took an extra toll on Theon because 
He really didn't have a choice. Like, he was an actual hostage. Yeah, oh yeah. But, you know, the Starks are good people. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, he was an actual hostage and, you know, had to live there. He didn't have a choice. But his father took it out on him. But it was his father's decision to have a rebellion. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, uh, that's consequences. And obviously, Balon has completely forsaken Theon in any way, shape, or form. He's... You know, yeah. you even hear him say that he's he's not even my son anymore. Exactly. And and so, you know, we end this sequence with Theon telling the group that he wants to go home. Yep. And Which, I, I don't I don't I mean, I don't think we've seen the last of Theon, but I really don't know what going home does for him and, you know, his story. Yeah, no, I, I think they just set it up to where, and I guess this is a good transition, actually, in, into mm-hmm. what we see next. Um, but, but I think the reason they have him going home is that he's going to get there conveniently to find out that his dad has died and that now he could potentially you know try to throw his hat in the king's moot which i don't think he'll win but anyway we got to get there first so we we go to pike and drew mentioned this to me on a sunday night which you know the iron islands were featured in the opening yeah they're back in the theme uh in the opening theme and uh and and one thing i noticed too is you know during the animations of it you see the rope bridges and they look very unstable. <laughs> yeah, Matt pointed this out to me. He was like, did you notice how they, you know, drew attention to that? And so they did. Yeah. And well, so yeah. I think that was some good foreshadowing for, for people who research the books or read the books to, sure. to know that uh, some stuff was going to go down. It, and it did indeed. So, you know, we get this typical Yara versus Balon, you know, the thousandth conversation they've had like this. About leading and ruling and whatever. Balon is so crazy. He thinks he won the War of the Five Kings. Yeah, well, you know, so he's kind of like that guy on Call of Duty who just like sits in a corner and will just kind of shoot people when they walk by. Yep. And then claim that he's the best person because he has the highest kill to death ratio. Which is, we all know that guy. Yeah, which is totally unfounded. But, I, you know, he really does win by default. Yeah, I guess. Everybody else is done. Yeah. And so, you know, you see this exchange between Yara and Balon, and, you know, you can really see her being more pragmatic than him. And yeah. that's the problem with the Ironborn is that they're a very prideful group of people. And very set in their ways. Yeah, but, but I think that... The, that their ways are to be very prideful. You know, you have to pay the iron price for this. You know, did you buy it with gold or did you pay the iron price? Yeah. You know, um, and I, I think that that kind of is also, you know, one of, the, one of the serious downfalls of their group. You know, they've been moderately successful to yeah. say anything. You know, they've, they've rebelled multiple times and have failed multiple times. And I think it's because they let that pride get in the way. Yeah, it gets in the way of common sense. You know, they're really, just just a quick side note, I think they're the most diverse from all the other, you know, major families. Um, you know, they're seafaring, way more so, and they have, uh, they practice, now, you know, religion is a little different all over the, the Western continent as well. It's, it's not all the seven. But, uh, they just have an interesting way of doing things, and I do think they think that Nobody else gets it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So they feel like, well, if we're governing ourselves, that's the better way. Yeah, absolutely. And so then we see Balon kind of storm out on Yara, 
and uh, this is where we can kind of see some stuff start to go down. Yeah, he hits the bridge and uh, sees a you know a cloaked figure, and eventually figures out it's his brother Euron. Yeah, and so you know in in the books Euron's a, 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 a fan favorite. Yeah, and you know he he's this badass pirate who kind of goes out and you know pillages and, and you know just kind of kind of. He, he's the typical Ironborn, like I said earlier. But in this exchange between him and Balon, it's almost as if he's, like, kind of crazy. Like, you know, so Balon's talking to him, and, and Euron will say, like, oh, I am the Storm, or I am the Drowned God. It, it's, it's almost like he's a really insane person. <laughs> well, yeah, he has this, like, cult of personality, Yeah, I think. Uh and he really buys in, buys into himself. You know, so in the books, I, I want to point this out for those who don't know. In the books, Euron's ship is manned by a bunch of mutes. He's cut out all of their tongues. Well, they, they give us a little you know? hint of that yeah. in the um, in in the, the that exchange in the show. Yeah, and so uh, yeah, I mean, he really must think something of himself. Yeah, but yeah, so anyway. There's a little bit of a struggle. Balon takes a dive. Yeah. And, and that's it. So it looks like uh, there will be the King's Moot's going to be happening. Um, and for, yeah. the, for those of y'all that don't know, uh, that is how the Ironborn select who their leader will be. Um, and essentially, you have to go and bring kind of treasure and show, you know, how, how good of a, essentially how good of a pirate you are. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind. Of, I mean, it's like a contest, yeah, yeah. basically. It's but, it's a it's a pissing match, yeah, essentially. Yeah, and then you know they vote and and they're selected. So yeah, they don't buy into the typical uh, family hierarchy that some of the other uh, families do. Yep, exactly. So anyway, we know though that at uh, Balon's you know burial quote, he's not actually buried. He's sent off on a little barge. Uh, that Yara clearly is lobbying. The uh, I don't know what he's called, but he's kind of like their religious leader. That dude that's always baptizing yeah. people, which is also another one of their uncles. I don't know. If yeah. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I'm not sure what they're exactly called. But anyway, yeah. he, she's lobbying, and uh, he's like, you know, it doesn't mean you're going to be chosen. Yeah, you know, everybody kind of gets to put in their hat, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And so, and it's so ironic because, and it, it's kind of very fitting for uh, the times that we're in right now, because she would be the first woman to rule the Iron Islands. Yeah, that's true. Uh, which is kind of fitting for, for what's going on in today's political realm as well. But the, the, the ironic thing is that, I mean, realistically, sh she's probably not going to win. No, I, I, I don't think she is. Um, they're probably going to say she's too stubborn, headstrong. You know, there's going to be some kind of yeah. But rationale. I think she's the most fit to run the place. Well, you know, like, I don't want to use, like, modern political terms, but she's very progressive, in my yeah. opinion, for, uh, you know, the Ironborn are so set in their ways, but I do find that, like you said earlier, she's pragmatic, but I also find her to be a little progressive in the sense of it doesn't have to be done the same way because. Exactly. And, you know, as it always is, even in, in the real world, that's always met with, you know, serious opposition. Yeah, people hate change. Yeah. So then we get to the, the scene of probably the entire series. The pinnacle. So 
we see it opens up with Mel, who is uh, I, I don't know if you all recall, but when she first gets to Castle Black and is talking to John, he makes the point of saying, you know, hey, do you want like a, a bigger coat or something like that because it's cold up here? And she says, well, the Lord of Light keeps me warm. And when we open up with Mel, she's wrapped up in all these blankets. And she's kind of staring into the fire very solemnly. And so the way I took that was is that, you know, she's not as filled with the faith for the Lord of Light, so she's colder. And is also kind of looking for answers in the flames as we see her do so many times. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, great uh, you know, observation about Melisandre and what we saw at the end of episode one and where she's at currently. And so uh, Sir Davos comes in and basically gives her, in my opinion, one of the best pep talks I've seen. Yeah. Uh, you know, talks about, you know, and, and to be fair, Davos has really seen her do the most um, with, Absolutely. you know, with the the abilities that she's been able to perform. Uh, but anyway, so he gives her this pep talk and basically says, you know, I'd like you to, you know, try and come bring back John. Yeah, and, and I know a lot of people have been saying like oh well you know how did Davos know that Mel could bring him back I'll say one he didn't know but he's seen her do supernatural things yes which so so you could see him kind of draw that logical parallel but also at the end of the day there has to be some reason to move the story forward and so people are all upset by oh this isn't super practical but you got to remember, it's about a guy who's being brought back from the dead anyway. Yeah. And at the end, this is all a story. So there, there has to be logical progressions in the story. And that sometimes requires us to make a leap in logic. Sure. But I'm going to interject and say that just because we don't see it on the show doesn't mean it didn't happen kind yeah. of a thing. Uh, I mean, Davos has been embedded with Melisandre for years now. And I know she's not directly done anything like this, but you'd, you'd assume he's either heard of people from the, uh, the faith of Rolor do this, or it may have been, you know, talked about in happenstance, you know, yeah. around him. Yeah. So it's just one of those things, like, if it wasn't perceived by us, doesn't mean it didn't happen. Yeah. And so, anyway, you know, he, he gives her a pep talk enough to where she's willing to try, yeah. To go out. And so, so we get the, the three musketeers <laughs> plus Melisandre and Ghost. And, you know, we kind of see this. It, it's very, you know, ritualistic yes. in, in their approach, which I really like. You know, she's speaking this high Valyrian. And um, I mentioned Watchers on the Wall earlier. They actually have a translation of what she was saying on their website. Oh, good. So uh, you can go online and find that. That's watchersonthewall.com. Um but but it's all about, you know, the Lord of Light fill in with your spirit. It's very close to what we see um, Thoros of Mir tell Beric Dendari, or, you know, say over Beric Dendarian's body yeah. whenever he tries to, um, to when, when he actually does bring him back for, I think, the sixth time. And so one thing I'd like to note, too, is that anytime we see resurrections happen, it's almost as if it's somebody who is questioning the Lord of Light and, and his abilities because, um, and y'all may not remember this, Thoros was, he was a red priest, 
but he wasn't the best priest out there. I mean, you know, he uh, he was drinking a lot. Yeah. He actually left his assignment, which was in King's Landing, to go to the Brotherhood Without Banners. Yep. And kind of do his own thing. So. Yeah, you know. he was. Uh, he felt he was an unsuccessful kind of missionary. Yeah. In spreading the faith of Rolor to Westeros. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so you know, she does the ritualistic kind of prep, you know, on the body, a lot of cleaning. And then we really kind of get down into the actual ceremony. We see some hair chopped, yeah. burning. Notice it, there wasn't too much taken off. Uh, I think that's yeah. still in Kit's contract. Yeah, prob- <laughs> probably is. Uh, but yeah, you know, we see kind of those just ritualistic things. And then she starts the incantations, which, as Matt pointed out, are in Valyrian. And um, so this this is the interesting part to me. So you know we're it's building and building and building, and you can tell she's doubting herself the whole time because she just went through the ringer, doesn't know what to think. And so we see her, you know, say this I think about four times maybe. Yeah. Um, over the body, nothing happens. And so I really thought they were gonna leave us hanging. On this, yeah. just in typical Thrones fashion. But people may have legitimately had heart attacks if they left uh, that. Because I tell you, my blood pressure was boiling. And an interesting thing, so, you know, obviously Drew and I, we mention all the time that, you know, we don't read the books, but we're expanded in our knowledge from yep. just the show. But a lot of people aren't. And so I've always assumed that John was coming back. It's kind of been a given for anybody who even you know digs a little in into what's happening in thrones mm-hmm. but a lot of people don't and so i had a, a buddy text me like oh my god he came back like i thought he was dead which is great because that's how the show you know really should be yeah so you know that, that's kind of a a little bit of joy we may never get to feel yeah that's true i mean there was no hope for some of our fallen comrades from before no uh but, you know, if the circumstances are right and you're probably a more important character to the story than is currently being led on, yeah. you may be able to come back. Exactly. And so, you know, the, the important questions going in for next week and um, are really, you know, so where does John go from now? You know, does this release him from his vows to the Night's Watch? Yeah. Is he going to go and retake Winterfell? Is he going to go and try to rally the houses to fight the White Walkers who are coming? And, you know, we're in uncharted territory. Yeah, we are. We've got a number of storylines in the North alone uh, that John will be a, a part of. A lot of impending doom, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, a couple you know, a couple things to consider as we look forward, uh, you know, in, into Season 6. Uh, I do want to point out that uh, Melisandre, at the end of the episode, doesn't, didn't know she did anything. Yeah. You know, she leaves with another, you know, cloud hanging over her yeah, head. Yeah, she's going to go uh, eat some ice cream and, <laughs> and I, I hope, don't I hope take she, Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I hope she keeps the necklace yeah, on. Just, <laughs> if, if, the, if the necklace is associated, I don't want to get into the whole continuity error thing. We've talked about it amongst ourselves. Uh, yeah, she can leave it on, have yeah. her own Ben and Jerry's. Clothes optional, yeah. necklace <laughs> a must. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, a lot to look forward to. Um, I know we said this earlier, but I really didn't think he was going to come back this early. Um, and I still had this thought in the back of my mind that he wasn't going to come back. Yeah. But I'm glad he did. 
Yeah, and so, you know, it, it was really about a six-minute long scene, and it was probably one of the longest six minutes I've had to watch of anything. I mean, I was I, I was screaming, like, yeah. when, he, when he woke up. You know, when Ghost moved and then they went to him, I was just like, wow. Yeah, and I think that was a really good nod to the book readers. Um, th- there's a bunch of theories about how John got resurrected, which we may have answered in the next episode. Yeah. But um, in the books especially, and they do a decent job of it in the show, but in the books there's a very, very, very strong connection between John and Ghost. Yes. Um, and so I think that was a good nod that they did by him being there. Yeah, I agree. Without making it confusing, uh-huh. you know, and it was just kind of a yeah, it was a nice, a nice kind of sign off. Yep. So all in all, I think this was absolutely a top three episode of the entire series. I would agree. I mean, it was it was up there. It was action packed. We got a lot of unexpected things, but something that Dan and Dave said going into the season, they didn't think they had a weak episode. Um. And, you know, this is just episode two. Yeah. And people will, you know, were very critical of the first episode. Yeah. I really enjoyed it, actually. Um, I-, I liked it enough. Yeah. Um, we had talked about this on our other recap. I'm just going to mention it briefly. I had kind of already known that Dorn was, the Dorn drama was coming. And so I was less impacted by it. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that was skewing my view of, you know, how impactful an episode it was. Um, I thought it was fine, but I really didn't think it was spectacular, just to be fair. Yep. So. That's true. All right, guys. Well, thank you all for uh, listening. Like I said, apologize once again. It's a couple days late, but uh, I think this is our, our best one yet that we've done. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed and, it. And uh, we hope you all will tune back in for us next week. Don't forget we have Tower of Joy coming up, so there'll be plenty to talk about then. Um, and once again, we want to thank our sponsors. <laughs> Sir Davo Seaworth. Still bringing onions to God knows where. <laughs> but uh, thanks, everybody. We appreciate all the feedback, positive. You know, if there's any uh, criticism or questions, you know, feel free to let us know. You can find us on Twitter, at District Dogma. Uh, we're, if you're not finding us on SoundCloud, you can also find us on SoundCloud. And uh, in the near future, we'll be up on a couple other social media platforms. And so... You know, we hope to bring you some other content as well. Yep, guys. Well, until next week, the night is dark and full of terrors. terrors.